was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, Executive Vice President of the Schubert Organization, Charles Flatman. As Executive Vice President since 2005, Charles has shepherded shows such as Hello, Dolly, The Scottsboro Boys, Macbeth, The Music Man, Jagged Little Pill, and A Strange Loop to Broadway. In addition to his role with the Schuberts, he is also the CEO of Audience Rewards, Broadway's loyalty program, the co-founder of Broadway Inbound, a board member of Entertainment Benefits Group, and the chairman of the board of NYC and Company, the destination management and marketing organization of New York City. He also served independently as a producer for Elaine Stritch at Liberty on Broadway and Harlem Song at the Apollo, in addition to being president of Greyline New York sightseeing tours for 15 years. So now, without further ado, please welcome Charles Flatman. <laughs> so I'd love to start by asking you um, about your growing up. Did you always have an interest in theater or did that come later? Um... I had an interest in parts of theater, not uh, not not direct head-on. Uh, I never wanted to be an actor. Um, I never wanted to be a performer. I did uh, when I was in college. I thought for a brief period that I wanted to write, wow. um, and uh, I did make some feeble attempts um, and realized pretty early on that I wasn't very good at it. So it's it's good to have those. Uh, it's it's good to find your mistakes early if, if if you're fortunate enough to do that. So I had an interest in theater, but um, not one that would be traditional. Certainly not when I was um, in junior high school or high school or any of any of that. Um, and did you ever consider producing as an option, or was it only when it was? Um, no, so my journey was really very protracted and backwards. So um, what I did when I was in college, I was um, I was a classics major, so I was studying um, ancient Greek and focusing on ancient Greek drama, and uh, and and I was sort of deeply involved in ancient Greek drama. Um, in all kinds of ways. And I went to live in Greece and I studied in, in Greece and I went back to teach uh, after college. And then um, I came back to New York and was uh, studying English in the doctoral program at Columbia. Um, but I needed money to live. And I had a cousin who ran a bus company um, in uh, New Jersey and New York. And he said, well, why don't you just come work for the bus company? And I said, 
Um, one thing I can assure you is that as long as I live, I will never work for a bus company. <laughs> and I think if you say that at uh, the age of 21, you're guaranteed to work for a bus company. Um, and I did that for 20 some odd years. Um, I ran a sightseeing bus company here in New York, um, having nothing to do with uh, uh, with theater very much, except that we were selling tickets to, uh, to to Broadway shows, and we ran the concierge desks in hotels. And I sort of got um, I, I was I, I got bitten by the theater adjacent bug, if not the theater bug. Um, and then that uh, bus company business got sold, and uh, people asked me if I would do some work for them um, focusing on tourism and the theater. And this was a long time ago, and that was really before the theater was really very much uh, the same sort of tourist kind of business that it is today, which is uh, a very big part of, of our audience. In any event, I was learning uh, uh, sort of doing some deep dive into theater. I very much got the bug. And um, I was asked if I would uh, work on one of the shows as a uh, um, as uh, sort of an associate producer. Um, and I, I did that. That show was a show at the Apollo Theater, actually. Um, by George C. Wolf, really a, a, one of our most brilliant contemporary directors called Harlem Song at the Apollo. And, um, uh, and I, I loved working on it. And I was in the theater seven days a week and until midnight through the rehearsals and through all the tech stuff. And I just got um, both feet planted in uh, in, in theater, and that's when I started producing. And that's yeah. when you, producing is when you have both feet planted and you have your wallet open. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's, that's what that was. Um, so it was not, not a, I was not a typical theater kid, yeah. um, like, uh, like, like so many are. Um, I didn't, I went to the shows that my parents took me to. Um, we didn't go in school back then. So it was a very much of a, of, of a different time. Um, yeah. So now that's why I'm catching up and I'm <laughs> at least 24 seven or uh, I'm, yeah. I'm in, in the world of theater at this point. And how did your work on Elaine Scritch at Liberty come back? Um, that was the same group of people that did Harlem Song. Um, and that was uh, in, in that show was the same sort of thing. I, I think one of the things that was missing was um, sort of regular management oversight. And I was so I filled a uh, I, I filled a need um, for uh, for both of those shows, Harlem Song and Elaine Stritch were really right around the same the same time. Um, and two important uh, producers back then um, called me up and said, we'd like to take you to lunch. That was um, uh, Daryl Roth, who oh. you, may, you may know. Um, she, 
still very, very active, and the mother of Jordan Roth, who is uh, Drew Jamson Theaters. Um, and uh, Margot Lyon is a, uh, a is, she's, she's passed, but uh, was really a great friend and a wonderful theater producer um, in her day, and did uh, um, Angels in America and Jelly's Last Jam and a bunch of other really, you know, great, great shows, uh, Hairspray, um, most notably and uh, more, more recently. Um, she was really a terrific producer. In any case, these two women said, we'd like to take you out to lunch. And they took me out to lunch and they said, we'd like you to be, um, to really do the management of this show and be the executive producer of the Harlem Song Show and the associate producer of Elaine Stritch. And I immediately said, I'd be delighted to do that. But what's an executive producer? <laughs> and they said, and they said, oh, sweetie, you'll figure it out. Uh, it's, it's, it just run the business. And I said, okay, I can, uh, I can do that. So that was that was really my entrance into uh, into that. And Elaine Stritch was um, it needed a lot of marketing. I was at that time very focused on how we got tickets into the hands of consumers and who is the right consumer for each show. Um, and they're all different and they all need to be looked at with a fresh sheet of paper and a clean lens. And um, from that, I just got deeper and deeper, you know, in the, the theater, everybody does a lot of jobs, no matter what it's called, you do what's necessary. Um, and doing what was necessary for that show was spending a lot of time with Elaine Stritch. <laughs> and uh, Elaine was uh, really one of the most brilliant talents that ever appeared on a Broadway stage or any place else, um, but was very much a, a um, challenged soul in the other 21 hours during the day when she was not of working on, on the theater. So she needed a lot of support and handholding and, um, and she was challenging for a lot of people. So she, she um, kicked people out of her life very easily and, um, and very thoughtlessly, but she didn't do it to me, at <laughs> least during the run of this show. So, um, so, so we built up a relationship. It was a completely, I knew that it was a relationship based on her need. Um, and, uh, and through that time, I was learning a lot about, about how, about the business of the theater and how to care for uh, a, a star. Um, and that stars are different from you and me. Um, well, maybe not from you. <laughs> so, so they, you know, stars take a, they have a different worldview and take, um, uh, and, and they need to, not only are they protecting their inner self, they're also protecting their outward appearance out in the world. And they're very focused on, on that because they are the brand and, yeah. they, and they know that. And they're also come from a creative place that is not easily understandable to me. Um, but I get that it needs coddling and care and nurturing. <laughs> Has there been a show of the many you've worked on that has been either especially challenging to find a sort of specific audience for, or you think that there wasn't really a specific audience for? Oh, I, I uh, you know, sadly, there are plenty that that never find 
its audience. Um, uh, well, you know, I think um, there there is any number of them. I uh, some of them actually could have a run for a while, but then lose steam. And and I'm thinking of more recent shows. Um, uh, um, I'm trying to think of. Um, okay, here the Scottsboro Boys. Oh was a really wonderful um, musical, Candor and Ed, um, very challenging, uh, challenging topic. And it was just very hard to sell that show about a really horrific uh, episode in our nation's history, um, written by two white men, yeah. Uh, about about a really horrible black experience that was going on. So the so the show had a hard time finding an audience because when people think of of candor and ebb, of course they think of Chicago and you think of fun, and um, and this was a very serious show. So the candor and ebb lovers might not have been interested in the topic. The people who were interested in the topic might not have been interested in candor and ebb. <laughs> Um, and that's an example of something that I, a, a show that had a tough struggle and at the same time was a really spectacular artistic achievement. Um, so that's, a, to me, that's a good example. There are other ones, shows that are lesser shows than that, at least, you know, in my lesser show in my uh, estimation. And they um, they often have trouble finding an audience. And I think we're seeing that now yeah. as we come into this very complicated spring season and the complicated fall season that we had before. So it's been not much roadmap. And we're seeing a, some of the new shows are having a hard time finding an audience. Um, <laughs> and nobody even knows whether they're great or good or terrible yet. So that's kind of so. So that's it's it often is the case about um, shows really trying to find out who exactly is the person who is going to love this show, and then and then finding ten thousand more of them. Do you see a kind of commonality between the many hits that you've worked on in terms of the audience that they appeal to, or? Well, it, it's I I. They have to create, um, they're joyful, I think. You know, hit, hits are joyful in one way or another. And um, the, the shows that get pulled out, Hairspray is a really good example of, of that. Um, and I'm sure we'll have revivals of Hairspray uh, at, at some point um, in the not too distant future. But when, when Hairspray opened, it was an explosion on the stage. Um, and the songs, people people remember them. Um, you know, Good Morning Baltimore and all those those songs, they they get pulled together in a in a way that is um is is really um something that people remember. Yeah. You know, Hamilton, probably the biggest hit in it certainly the biggest hit in my lifetime. Um is drawn from a creative place that is, um, it's, it's almost not human in the way that, um, in, in the way that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda 
took the source material and turned it into something that at no point would I have ever made that connection of, of hip hop and, uh, and, and that part of our history. Um, and of course the music is wonderful and, and fifth graders know the entire score. Um, so, so, so that, um, you know, there's that piece of, of commonality. Um, plays sometimes are different. Plays, plays will, um, play, plays will, will hit your core in a different way and sometimes in a much, in a, in a much tougher place. Um, but they're the, the plays that are really noteworthy. Um, you take home with them with your with you, and you think about them, and you talk about them at the dinner table or at the breakfast table the next day. Um, and and to me, that's the the litmus test. Is I, I see a lot of shows, and honestly, there are shows that I see that the next day I can barely remember what it what happened yeah. um, because it didn't engage me in that same way. It's um, it didn't it didn't um, raise the stakes enough emotionally. So that, that's the sort of thing that I gravitate to is having the emotional stakes um, be meaningful during, at, uh, throughout the course of the evening and then be able to have a release at some, you know, an emotional release somewhere in a musical. I love that 11 o'clock number, which could have yeah. 10 o'clock now um, because it is that emotional release of, of, um, of, of the, the tightening of that spring. And then when that spring, that's, that spring opens up, it's, um, that's, that's where you get that joy. The, the emotional release in a play has to happen really in the same way that you have to be brought along on a creative journey in a, in a way that actually hits the marks. So, because you, you still have to be able to care about the who you're following, whose story it is, and you have to care two hours later. Um, and that's not always the case. Sometimes it just doesn't gel in a, in a way that people care about. And do you think that it takes more for a play to be widely successful than it does for a musical? Or um, it takes something different for a play to to be successful. The, the measure of success, and now this is about really the, the business of Broadway, um, plays are built for the most part to run for a season and then be done. So we don't see uh, almost ever, we, we don't see long running plays that go for two or three years or four years. And, and it's because the plays are they're still enormously expensive to produce a play, but it's a fraction of what it is for, for a musical. So with a play, to be commercially successful, and then I'll put caveats about what commercially successful is, um, it, it, it's possible for a play to be commercially successful and play for 15 weeks in the spring season or 15 weeks in the fall season. For a musical, you probably can't get your money back in less than a year for most of them, um, if you're lucky. Both plays and musicals almost always fail commercially. 
Um, so you may have heard this, that only 20% of, of theater projects actually make their money back. So that means that the risk of that, that four out of every five that you do, not only won't make their money back, but may lose the entire thing. And when lose the entire thing can mean $5 million for a play, it could mean $20 million or more for a musical. And we would pretty much know that that was going to happen. Um, that could, you could know it on opening night. You could know it before. So it's, you know, imagine if you're, if you're starting a restaurant, you start that restaurant and you hope that over time people will start to like it and you will, you, you'll build a following. But with the theater, it has to happen like an explosion, um, right, right out of the gate. And if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. <laughs> so, so there's a there's a different um, uh, there's there's a different financial um, litmus for plays versus musicals. Um, but for both of them, if if it is not meaningful, if if people are watching it and they're not they're not sitting up and in their seats, then it won't be successful. You have to get the audience to actually at least a few times in, in that show to move from like back here to like to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and if you can't get that, then there's really no hope. And with that very sort of small success rate in mind, how do you and the Schubert organization, how do you pick shows that you think will get that kind of reaction? Yeah. Um, so nobody knows. One, one, of, <laughs> uh, one, of the, uh, the, one of our colleagues, uh, Jimmy Niederlander Sr., was the, the former owner of, of the Niederlander organization. He, he said, nobody knows nothing about nothing in this business. <laughs> and it's all just a guessing game. And I think that that is probably true. Nobody can predict a hit. Um, now you can predict what is a good um, swing at the bat. Yeah. We're talking about baseball. So, so you want a, a project that will, will give it a proper try. And by proper try, that means that it has to have um, creative people and designers that are committed and attached to the project. It has to have um, actors who are available at the time you want, particularly if you have a star. So if, if the, um, you have to have the right building for the show. So there, there are shows that, that make wonderful sense in the Booth Theater, which is our smallest with uh, about 600 seats. Um, but the Booth Theater might not be available and maybe the Broadway is available with 1700 seats, but that show is not going to make it in the, in the Broadway because it's not, it's not the right thing. So you have to have, uh, for a project the, to, be, to work, and this is what we look at about can this be successful, it's about timing um, it's about the creative people. It's about whether the building is ready. Um, 
Sometimes it's about the relationships that we've had for many years. There might be producers who we've known for 20 years and they're waiting for a building. Um, and sometimes it's, it's just luck. And sometimes there's a star that says that he or she is available, but I'm only available during this particular time. And, um, and that star may jump the line in, in, in that if, it's, if we think that the project is, uh, is, is really a good one. So it's not like, um, like you, take a, uh, you take a number at the deli um, and it's just your turn for a show. It's, um, it's, it's much more carefully curated than that. And we do try to make sure that there's a, um, that we have enough shows for particular pieces of the audience. So um, we are now very focused that we have, that we have shows that um, feature and are produced by um, BIPOC individuals. So, so that's important. We wanna make sure that we have uh, some family shows in there. It doesn't necessarily even have to be in our theater, but it has to be on Broadway. Yeah. Um, there are 41 Broadway theaters and we like to look at the entire landscape and make sure that we don't have a show that might be competing with a show that does almost the exact same thing or hits the exact same part of the um, of, of the market. And that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't because we're not all, we're not just one business. So surprises will will come up and um, uh, but that's that is our our desire is really to curate it pretty carefully. Yeah. Um, and within that desire, sometimes it works. So, sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. But I think for the most part, when you look at uh, 45th Street, which is is our block of that's our that's our little piece of real estate for the most part. Um, here and you see the shows that um, that are playing now. You see a, a an interesting diversity of um, of voices and and worldviews. So um, we have uh, for colored girls who have considered suicide at the booth, which is our smallest theater. And then working down is um, uh, we have company. Uh, there, which is certainly legacy and a, a spectacular show with Patty Lapone and, um, and and all that sort of thing for people for for Broadway lovers. There's Come From Away, which is uh, a great show for visitors and sort of an en entry level show. Um, and we have Dear Evan Hansen across the street, which is also a spectacular show that uh, that has a um, really great emotional center, if you ask me. So there's, and that's just on, on one of our blocks. So yeah. there's a lot. And so you mentioned um, James Nierlander briefly. And so I'd be curious to know, do you think that there's something that makes a show sort of maybe more likely to be a Schubert show than a Seju Jansen show? Or do you think that that's basically random? I think it's basically random. There's. People have a lot of theories about what will be in a Jujamson. This is perfect for Jujamson, or this is perfect for Niederlander. And, um, but I think that's mostly a fiction because most of the time it's about what is available at any given time. And, and just to put more of a fine point on that, 
um, shows continue now for years. So in, in um, 30 and 40 years ago, before I arrived on the, on the scene here, um, a, a, a big hit would last for two years or for three years. Um, now we have, we have hits that don't have any sign of, uh, of giving up the ghost at, at all. So it, a show like Phantom of the Opera can, will play forever. You know, um, Lion King is, is that kind of show. Wicked is that kind of show. So because there are fewer and fewer theaters available, it's more important that the timing of what's available at any given time really is more important than whether it's got a Niederlander sensibility or a Schubert sensibility. Um, I, I, I think maybe it, that was a thing back in the old days, um, but that's not the case anymore. And even some people would say, well, the producers, this is a Niederlander producer. Um, and I would say, well, that is a Niederlander producer, but that producer has produced their last three plays in a Schubert theater <laughs> uh, and vice versa. Yeah. And, and we tell the buildings are so tight right now yeah. that if um, we tell people who are, who, who love working with us in Schubert theaters and if they're offered a theater in a Jujamson house or in a Niederlander house, they would come to me or to my colleagues and say, I'm so sorry, I, 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 you know, but what, what should I do? I'd rather be with you. And I say, do not be sorry. If they're giving you a theater, you should just take it. And, yeah. and, and that's it. And we've, we, we're all big boys and girls around here. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and do you assign sort of a personality if it were to every theater? And for instance, I know the, um, the court newly renamed hasn't had a show in a while. And is that for a specific reason? Like there hasn't been a show to fit that theater? Or? Well, the court is newly renamed because we're doing a massive expansion of that theater. Oh. Um, we're not expanding the audience size. So it will have the same number of seats as it had before. But for anybody who had, who remembers what it was like to be in the court um, it was a terrible patron experience. There, there were um, not enough, uh, not enough bathrooms. So at intermission, if we had a show that was that was successful, we couldn't accommodate the people in the bathrooms. So we would, uh, we made a deal with the Chipotle across the street, and we would tell people go to the Chipotle, and then uh, at, during intermission and and come back. Um, the everything was very crowded. The um, the stage house was too small for the wings. We had a, a, a the wing on one side was a proper wing for a Broadway theater, and on the other side was about half that size. It was hard for the actors to um, uh, the 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 pass through areas were too small. There wasn't any place to have uh, the trap area, which is underneath the stage, was too small for modern, you know, for all the modern stuff that you see moving, moving sets around and stuff like that. So anyway, um, we had an opportunity to buy a piece of vacant land that be that became vacant right next to the theater, and we're 
and we're in the process of building an entire new building attached to the court where we can have lounges and proper restrooms and um, places where people can get food and beverage and you know all that stuff merch um, so that's so so that's why um, out of that gave us our opportunity to rename the theater and um, and of course we're really excited that we're it's now going to be the James Earl Jones theater um, but so so that was that's why the court was a it, it wasn't a hard theater to book, but only because there were so many shows looking for so few, um, you know, for so few buildings, but it was really not a good customer experience. Um, and if you ask around, people would say, oh, I, the court was terrible. Um, and it also had a lot of street noise, which I think we're going to take care of. So there's all kinds of things like, like that. Um, but theaters do have a personality um, in a in an odd way. There's um, you know a show like for me, the Winter Garden is one of our larger theaters. It's it's got unusual dimensions for a Broadway theater, and um, uh, the, what makes it unusual is that it actually is fairly close. To the the last seat in the orchestra is actually fairly close to the stage, but it's very very wide. It's um, and that gives a lot of really good intimate um, audience uh, audience perspective in what's a what's a very large theater. Um, and there's a reason for that, a historical reason about the about the Winter Garden, which is that it was never built as a theater. Uh, the, the, the Winter Garden actually in the 1800s was where um, it was the central location in New York City where horses were auctioned. Um, so essentially what you see as the orchestra, um, if, if, if you've had an opportunity to go in there um, for the music man, you, that big wide orchestra is that way because it was really a horse ring. Um, <laughs> And and it was sort of turned turned a little bit on on its side. So so the so, so the Winter Garden has a personality in in the way that it has its um, uh, its its sight lines. The Music Box also is always very much in demand because it's it's intimate um, while also has a, a fairly large capacity. So each one of them has its. Um, its its own special charms, I, I think. Um, some of the older theaters have three levels, have a, um, a balcony mezzanine and an orchestra. So producers prefer to be in a theater with two levels. Um, and, uh, but that's the way they are. These are all old historic buildings. They're all landmarks in, um, in, in the city. They can't be changed. We don't have any desire to change them. Um, so yes, I mean, I, I, I get a different sense when I'm in, in each of them. And, and the one thing about a Broadway theater that is very, very different from Broadway when it's on the road, the touring Broadway, and it's a touring Broadway is an enormous piece of the Broadway business. Um, but the Broadway theaters are much, much smaller. 
And so it's a much more intimate experience in every one of the Broadway theaters than you would get if you were at a big performing arts center. When the performing arts centers around the country are lovely and they're modern and they have all the conveniences and restaurants and all sorts of stuff, um, but they also will tend to have about 2,700 seats. So the same show that's playing here in New York with a thousand seats, which is not large at all, um, has to deliver the same emotional punch in a big 2,700 seat theater. And that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. I know that the um, the Schubert organization also owns one off-Broadway theater, Stage 42. And so how do you decide what to put in there and how is it different because it's off-Broadway, even yeah. though it's in Times Square? Um, we, we actually own more than, than that. We also own oh, um, New, New World, World Stages. Stages. Yeah, so New World Stages is a five theater complex with uh, the, um, uh, theaters ranging from 199 seats to 499 seats in, in there. Uh, stage 42 is 499 seats. And there's um, some significant differences. It's much, much cheaper to for a show's running costs to be in either New World Stages or at Stage 42. Um, there's different, uh, in, in theater, of course, we have every union that anyone can imagine. We have we have twelve unions um, that uh, that are that work on Broadway. So there's a lot of complexity there. We don't have as many um, union restrictions in the uh, in the off Broadway theaters, and some in some cases none whatsoever. So those are very small. Um, they tend to be much smaller shows, and um, and more intimate. And not everything is is right for Broadway. Um, and so, so there are some shows that just don't need the scale of Broadway and they don't need to get the imprimatur of a Tony. So, um, so we do try to book those in uh, uh, at stage 42. We just use stage 42 as a rehearsal space for a, a new show that we're bringing in in the fall called Some Like It Hot. And uh, so that so so we've been rehearsing there for the spring, and we'll have a an, another show coming in in the summer that I can't announce yet. But um, it's uh, the the intimacy of that is um, is special. Stage forty two is a is a very unusual theater because it actually has a Broadway size stage while having a smaller audience. So the stage itself is. Um, the stage of stage 42 is about the same size as the stage of the Schubert Theater. And the Schubert Theater has three times as many seats in it. So, um, uh, so, so producers and actors love to be at stage 42 because it's the, the sight lines are so good and it's, uh, and it's so comfy. And then at the other off-Broadway theaters, we have all kinds of things that we get the small, the smallest theater at New World Stages. We have the Bubble Show, which is for many four-year-olds, the first show that they ever went to. Um, so that's a piece of the market that obviously we would never serve um, on, on Broadway. And then we have, um, sometimes we have shows that had been on Broadway that transfer when the economics no longer work on Broadway, they'll move from, from Broadway 
to an off-Broadway theater, which is why Jersey Boys is very happily sitting down at stage 42 at, uh, at, at this point. Um, you know, so that's, that's the way it works. These shows all have evolutions. Every show has a life cycle and not all of them have the, not all of them work in a smaller theater when, so, so a lot of them can't actually transfer from a big theater to the small, but every once in a while you get one and, um, and they settle in for a long time. Avenue Q was after a very healthy Broadway run. It, it went to stage um, to New World and lasted another 10 years there. So you never know. And I'd love to ask specifically about the sort of process of the Music Man, which is, I would say, the biggest hit this season so far. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, the the Music Man is uh, has been monumentally complicated, but because of COVID and because of timing. So, the the Music Man was on sale pre-COVID. Yeah. We had. Uh, one of the largest advances that we ever had, maybe the largest advance we ever had at the, at the Schubert organization, meaning that we uh, so many people bought tickets that we were functionally sold out for almost a year. Um, and then came COVID. Yeah. So, so when COVID happened, as I'm sure you know, in the beginning, people said, well, it will last for a few months and then we will and then we'll be back. So we took everybody's everybody who bought a ticket and we sort of lifted them up psychologically from the date that they had and plopped them into new dates six months later and said, if you don't want to come, you can get a refund. Um, well, we did that three times there. Each time we called it the lift and shift. So we, we lifted the lifted it up and the map of the theater shifted to new dates. Um, monumentally complicated. It's, it sounds easy to describe it. It's not an easy thing for our ticketing people and our operations people. Well, all the same time, while that's happening, you still need, from a production perspective, the show needs to be able to rehearse they need to have a space to rehearse. They need to have all of the COVID protocols that have since been put in place. And they need to have all of their stars, Hugh Jackman at the very tip top of that, have to be available and not doing a movie or not doing whatever it is that Hugh Jackman does. Um, so all of the timing was each time we moved it was this tremendous negotiation with all of those people. And it takes hundreds of people to pull together a Broadway show. Well, they all had to be available in sync for something that we moved it to another schedule. That didn't happen. You move it to another schedule. That doesn't happen. Spend a lot of money on advertising and promoting and all that you can light a match to. So that doesn't happen. Um, so that was our process until finally, we were able to get the show open right before Christmas. Um, and then, of course, then um, Hugh Jackman and Sutton got sick. <laughs> and so we had to stop and, and start again. And their performances had to become recalibrated and do all the things that, that it takes to, to do. Um, and as you're rehearsing, every time you're rehearsing, if you 
pull out two lines and a lighting cue, it could cost $30,000 when you're practicing that sort of thing on the stage or more, because everybody needs to, um, you know, lighting needs to change and this, the sound department needs to do its thing and stage management needs to do its thing and costumes sometimes might get involved in that if they can't make the quick changes because you cut out 30 seconds that they needed to put on a new costume with other people backstage. So it's monumentally complicated. Um, and I would say that this year's Music Man at the Winter Garden was about as complicated as anybody has ever seen. Um, and uh, still, all those people that we gave them different dates four times still love it. And they, they hung in there and they're still going. And, and the show is a, is a big joyous hit. Yeah. yeah. And I'd love to ask about another smash hit revival that you did somewhat recently, which was Hello Dolly with Bette Midler. Yes. Um, similar sort of process that uh, same, same group of producers, same director, Jerry Zaks. Um, the shows are similar in, in some ways. The, the thing about um, Hello Dolly is that this version of Hello Dolly, which was really pretty remarkable, yes. was really, um, it was Bette Midler doing Bette Midler and then wrapping a show around it, which was Hello Dolly. It was, this was all Bette Midler. Um, and, you know, the diva of all, of all divas. So she was, um, and she loved being at the Schubert Theater, um, which is, Right where I'm looking outside my window right now, um, and the that show also was a giant hit. Um, she and and people just wanted to see Bette Midler. They wanted to see Hello Dolly a little less. <laughs> so on the days that that she was that she was out, um, we saw it in the in the ticket sales. But you know, for that once in a lifetime ability to be sitting 20 feet away from Bette Midler, if you're so fortunate. Those are memories of people, including me, will take with me forever. It was, it was really special. Yeah. Um, in order to do that, we needed to take the dressing room that was there at the Schubert and expand it. And, <laughs> and we needed to punch it out. And of course, these are historic buildings. So you can't really do anything with the building itself. We can't add an addition like you could do with the with the house. Um, so she, she needed her dressing room looking different. And, and we did it with tricks of lighting. She wanted a uh, heated toilet seat as a, it's her was her special request, which we did because she said it gets cold in this old building. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was having bed around was quite an experience. Yeah. And with something that there is so much demand for, like Hello Dolly or The Music Man, how do you decide on what ticket prices are? And are you involved in that decision? Or? Yeah. So ticket prices have been a an, another complexity that's grown more complex over the last few years. Um, of course, if you're the producer, it, it, it's a business and you want to earn as much money as you possibly can for, for that. So if you have a mega hit, you can almost write your own ticket price. Um, at the same time, 
Macbeth is a good example. So, so Macbeth with with Daniel Craig and Ruth Nega is uh, having its first performance next week. Oh. Um, that has all the signs of being a big hit. Um, and uh, Daniel Craig, however, is very concerned about having high prices for his show that make him make him as a star um, not look good. So he will say, I don't want the prices. And his producers will say, well, we have to, now they're still pretty expensive. Uh, these are like crazy expensive tickets in general, but they could float higher. Um, the highest price ticket that we have is $475 for that show. That's an expensive ticket yeah. um, to see Shakespeare. Um, but people are buying it and they probably could get more. But Daniel Craig says, well, we, we can't do that. So, um, so, so that price that, and there are also tickets for much, much cheaper. It's yeah. not like that's only $475 <laughs> or tickets for $89 and uh, $99 too, I think. Um, so what happens though, is that there is something, uh, there's the secondary market for tickets, which is so somebody can buy a ticket and then resell it. Yeah. So um, on StubHub or some other, some ticketing site, um, which does that. So if the price is too low, then, and the, the demand by real people is so great that they'll pay $1,000 a ticket. All that happens is a broker will buy the ticket for the, the low price because Daniel Craig said, I want to do the right thing. Um, and then resell it for $1,000. And Daniel Craig didn't achieve his goal, and um, uh, and the show didn't maximize its its earnings at the same time. So that's so that's um, we're very sensitive to how people are buying tickets. We we track it. There's a lot of technology within the ticketing system that sees where people if they if do they stop do they lose interest in buying a ticket for the show when they see the show description or do they lose interest when they see that the calendar shows them that they can't go on the date that they wanted or do they lose interest when they see what the price is and we track all of that stuff really down to 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 the nits every single day with every single show um, to try to understand what the proper price is for a lot of shows, the opposite problem is, of course, what what is what prevails, which is that even for ninety nine dollars for a great seat in the orchestra, some nobody wants to buy it. And then we have to, and then we're discounting through all kinds of mechanisms to discount and um, uh, and and try to find an audience at some price that will love this show and start to talk to people and spread the word, which a lot of a lot of our marketing is always, um, it's word of mouth. People have to see the shows, they have to get in early um, and talk it up amongst their friends. That's the, that's really the main goal. It's, the, it's our main goal for this spring is get yeah. people into the buildings, um, get them in at almost any price. Uh, and that's why you, you you can see a lot of deep discounts this spring um, as we're rebuilding our audience for theater. 
Um, we have a lot of shows and we may not have as much audience as we have for shows because people are still not traveling to New York and a lot of people still aren't going out as much as they used to. So, um, so, so we're tracking that and we have a lot of, of real significant values in the market just to get people in so we can take a picture and say happy people coming out of the theater and have them start to spread the word about how much they enjoyed whatever is uh, whatever is the new show that that we're uh, that we've got this year. And so I know our time is sort of running out, but I'd love to ask about the, um, of course, the pandemic and the shutdown. And so between your dual roles on Broadway and with NYC and company, mm -hmm. how did you first find out about the? Um, well, I was, um, I was the proverbial canary in the coal mine um, on the pandemic because I knew, uh, I started to hear and this was out of my role in NYC and company, that there was um, that there was this issue in China, in Wuhan. They were starting to close down the um, trade for visitors from China to New York. Um, so back in, this was December and January, December of 2019, January of 2020, um, we started to get concerned not about New York. Back then it was really about that the biggest visitor market for New York after England is China. So we were going to start to feel it in hotels and things like that because Chinese people weren't coming. And we said, well, we're going to have to recalibrate without China. Once it started to spread, particularly in Italy, we knew that we were going to be in for a, a very rough go. But we were all blinded back then. And we've, we had uh, bad information. People said, well, it'll maybe be just like the flu. Don't bother with masks. If you remember, then it was, yes, you have, you know, we went for a long time with people, the medical experts were don't, don't do masks and things like that. Uh, as we got closer and closer, it, we felt those gathering storm clouds. And yet in late February of 2020, we were still blithely ignorant about the whole thing. Um, you know, we knew it, we read about it, but we did not think this, uh, that how, how badly it would impact us. And then, um, and, and, and then we got our first case at, uh, at a Schubert theater on March the 10th, I believe. Um, and we did again all the wrong things. Um, we, we, we got, uh, we had those professional hazard cleaners come in, you know, with those white spacesuits and they come in with these spraying. We sprayed down the whole theater um, at the booth. It was immaculate. The theater was gorgeous. Wow was I never saw it as clean as it was on that day. And we started up uh, uh, the show again. It was for, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was, was the show. Um, I made a stage speech to the cast and the crew. Look what we've done, it'll be fine. Um, of course, that was a big lie because it wasn't fine at all. Um, and it had nothing to do with how clean the surfaces were. It all it was it was airborne, which we didn't really um, ascertain as enough at the time. 
couple of days later, um, we knew that we were going to shut down and we did the next monumentally stupid thing, which was we gathered a meeting of the producers who had shows and uh, into a, a large conference room, but a conference room that would have fit 20. We probably had 100 people smashed into this room. Nobody had masks. We were all breathing on each other, um, announcing that we were going to shut down. The producers are entrepreneurs. They were pushing back. Why do we have to do this? And we said, we, we have to do this because this is inescapable. Um, but we were all in this very crowded room. And then 10 days, then we shut on, on the 12th of March, 2020. Um, and uh, a big chunk of us got sick uh, of COVID 10 days later. <laughs> um, so we felt it very, we, we were early, uh, early adopters of COVID uh, at a very tough time when there wasn't a lot of medical expertise about COVID at that time. And, but we thought it would be of shorter duration, as I said before. Um, and uh, here it was, it was uh, near, you know, all this, all this time, now we're just getting ourselves back um, uh, two years later. So um, it's, been, it's been quite a ride. Yes. And if I ever write a book, that will be, I, I can fill up uh, a thousand pages out of that book. So. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been wonderful to talk to you. It's my pleasure. It's nice, nice to talk to you. And Listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I'm joined for the first part of my celebration of the 50th anniversary of Greece by the show's original director, Tom Moore. As one of Broadway's most successful directors, Tom Moore was Tony-nominated for his work on Night Mother, which he also spearheaded on screen and over here with the Andrews sisters. His other Broadway credits include Moon Over Buffalo, Once in a Lifetime, Frankenstein, Division Street, and the Octet Bridge Club. Off-Broadway, he directed Welcome to Andromeda. He has also been nominated for Emmys for his work on L.A. Law, E.R., and Mad About You, and his other TV directing credits include 30-something, Sybil, Picket Fences, and Gilmore Girls. So make sure to come back next time for that, and thanks for listening.